twine linen as the veils that you'll see in the temple or in the tabernacle and temple system. Again, there's another view coming from the south looking northwest and you see that altar of sacrifice where the blood would be shed, <coughs> then the laver, and then the actual tabernacle itself. We talked about how the, <clears throat> at the beginning there's invitation and then the first thing you come to when you go through that gate is that altar of sacrifice. That's the salvation. Then the labor is the cleansing because even after we're saved, <coughs> there's always the need for continual cleansing, not for new, new salvation, but for just getting right with God, cleaning up, whatever it might be, and then service after that. And that's, that's the order that God would have it. He would not want us to serve before we get saved. That doesn't do any good. He would not want us to clean up before we serve or before we get saved, excuse me, because getting saved is the first cleansing. Then after that is the outward cleansing and then the service. And so you have to accept the invitation and then you have to go through the gate. Jesus said he is the only gate and the only way. And so by him, we have that salvation. By him, we have opportunity and are welcome to serve. So we picture that, we see that pictured in the courtyard <clears throat> the tabernacle or the actual tent itself is what we started to look at last week and the different outer coatings and how that it gets more beautiful as it, as you peel off the layers and the outer layer is not so impressive, but that's not how God thinks. He's not worried about what man thinks on the outward. It's the inward and he knows better. He knows what's on the inside. So you've got the holy place, which is what we studied last week, and then you've got the most holy place and that would be what we're going to look at tonight. And so again, the cutaway shows what it looks like inside there. You've got the candlestick, you've got the table of showbread, you've got the altar of incense representing what? What was the altar of incense representing really? The prayers. And so after salvation, after cleansing, then you go inside, there is the lamp, there is the showbread, and then you have the altar of incense. That's the closest thing to the veil that separates the holy place, the most holy place. And that that is... Uh, pictured there by the prayers. We, we're, we're in tune, we're in communion with God. Blood from the outside altar would be put on those horns on that inside altar, but it was an altar of incense offering prayer to God as a sweet incense, a sweet savor to the Lord. So tonight we start to look at what's inside that veil, and that is mainly, really, the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place, the, the, the place where God's presence was. <clears throat> So this most holy place is only a third of the size of the whole tabernacle itself, but is the place. It's really the center of everything. The high priest entered the most holy place only once a year on what's called the Day of Atonement. And he would go inside, he would move back part of that veil and go in there and sprinkle the blood on the altar, on the mercy seat, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest entered sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the, his sins and the sins of the people. Atonement, <clears throat> it's called the day of atonement. He would do this once a year. We'll see that in Leviticus chapter 16 in a little bit. And the focus of the most holy place was that ark of the covenant. The glory of God rested upon the lid of the ark and the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. The ark is actually two pieces of furniture. It's the box and then it's the lid. And so those two pieces of furniture make up a total of seven pieces total. You've got the big altar on the outside where the blood sacrifice took place. You have the laver, that's two. You go inside, you have the lampstand, that's three. You have the table of showbread, that's four. You have the altar of incense, that's five. 
And then into the most holy place, you have the ark itself, and the lid was considered a separate piece. And so seven total pieces of furniture. Again, all the dimensions involved there. Um, Exodus chapter 26. And so we'll read and look at some things there. Is that where I told you to go? I think it is. Uh, Exodus 36, Exodus 26. Reading from Exodus 26, I'll start there in verse 33 and 34, and then we'll go to Exodus 36 as well. Exodus 26 and verse 33. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And thou shalt set the table without the veil and the candlestick over against the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And so giving you the dimensions and the places of the other things on the outward that we studied last week. Then go to chapter 36. Chapter 36, (coughs) verse 35. And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen. With cherubims made he it of cunning work. And he made thereunto four pillars of shittim wood, and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold, and he cast for them four sockets of silver. And he made hanging for the tabernacle door of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of needlework. And the five pillars of it with their hooks, and he overlaid their chapters and their fillets with gold. And their five sockets were of brass. It rests on sockets of silver. I told you last week that silver represents redemption. Redemption, the silver represents redemption. The whole thing rests on redemption or salvation. Also, you could look with me in Hebrews chapter number 10, if you'd like, Hebrews chapter number 10, because again, in the New Testament, these references back to the tabernacle system is exactly what we're doing here. And so by looking at this in the Old Testament, it helps us to understand what he's saying, what was being written in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has a lot of references to the tabernacle system and to the priests. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And so we'll look at that here in a minute and uh, talk about those things. The, <clears throat> give you some references. I just put those last ones up on the screen for you there. That's what we just read. The veil itself, what color was it? It was blue, it was purple, and it was scarlet. It was a divider between the holy place and the most holy. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and nobody saw it except for the high priest, and that was once a year. We know as we look at the, as we study the priest himself and what he wore, we know he had bells on the border of his robe. So those bells would have jingled. Traditionally, it is said that if the jingling stopped when he was inside there, that was not a good sign because that meant that he wasn't moving around anymore. Um, And so it's traditionally said that they might have tied a rope to his ankle and if they didn't hear the jingling anymore because maybe he wasn't right with the Lord and he dropped dead when he was in the presence of God, they would fish him out. That's not in the Bible. I don't think God ever intended for that to happen. That's not the picture that God would want to paint, but I suppose that might could have happened. We know of people who touched the ark. We know of people who looked in the ark and it didn't bode well for them. They died. 
This is the presence of God we're talking about here. It was a, this veil itself was a barrier between God and man. Can you imagine? Remember I told you about how that John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was, was at the altar of incense in the temple? Can you imagine realizing that you're just feet away from the Ark of the Covenant on the other side of that curtain? Can you imagine the thought of that? And then all of a sudden to have an angel go, boo, or whatever he said, when he, when he said, Zacharias, you know, whoa. I mean, I, I, I can, that's why I went, yeah, last week, because I think it would have been frightening to have a voice speak to you when you're not used to anybody being there but you. But knowing who's on the other side of that curtain, only the high priest would enter into the most holy place and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we can look there and I'll read it to you. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle or the first room, the holy place, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second room went the high priest alone once every year and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. You would never dare go into the presence of God without a blood atonement, without the opportunity to have something to appease God and to atone for your sin and the sins of the people, it says right there in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The veil was made of a heavy woven cloth. <coughs> I've read that the veil, not, not the one in the tabernacle, but once they built the temple, and the temple was the same thing as the tabernacle, only on a grander scale, bigger ratio. The veil in the temple, they say, was so thick that two teams of horses could not have hooked up to it and pulled it apart. It was that thick of a veil. And yet, what happened to it? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was ripped in two. Now, again, we talked about how that it's made of blue, purple, scarlet thread with designs of cherubim embroidered on it. Cherubim would have been uh, like an angelic being with, with uh, wings, or two, two different pairs of wings. And the cherubim and the seraphim were very similar, except that cherubs had four wings and seraphim had six wings. And so the cherubs would have had covered uh, wings over their uh, faces and maybe over their feet. And uh, the seraphim would have had a, an extra set. And so that's what would also be embroidered with it. It was hung on those four, four pillars of acacia or shatim wood overlaid with gold. I'll, I'll, gold. I'll explain the shatim wood in just a minute. And those four gold hooks were put on those four sockets of silver that we read already in the Bible. But blue, purple, scarlet, again, what does it represent? It represents heaven. It represents earth. And when you take blue and you take scarlet and you mix it together, you get purple. And that's why it says blue and purple and scarlet because it was a representation of Jesus himself. Like everything else in the tabernacle was a representation of Jesus. And that is what Jesus is. He is from heaven, but he's also human. He is the God man. He is Christ Jesus. He is God. He always has been God, but the word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so it's represented. I don't know that our artists who made our, our uh, slides did it right. I think maybe it could have been all blue at the top, all scarlet at the bottom, and kind of a blend of purple in the middle. You're kind of showing more of the picture that I'm describing to you here. Uh, it, regardless, it was those three colors. Why is that? Because he is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You can't access the Father, the presence of God, without going through the veil. 
And so there's a lot of significance here and a lot of picture uh, to, to look at. There was no separation in the middle back in those days. <clears throat> Apparently, and we get this from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8. I read verse 6 and 7. Now let's read Hebrews 9 and verse 8. Apparently, they would have had to have go around the side. Verse 8 says, the Holy Ghost, thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. And so apparently they would have had to pull it to the one side in order to go in. <clears throat> they would not, not be able to go down the middle of it uh, because it had not been split down the middle. But we will see a separation that will take place. And that is when Jesus Christ died on the cross in the temple after it was constructed. The same design, the same pattern, only grander, bigger, bigger ratio, but the same exact pattern this time temple, Jesus dying on the cross cries out, it is finished. And that thing that was so thick, two teams of horses couldn't tear it apart, rips from the top, not from the bottom, from the top to the bottom. Somebody reached down and ripped it. And that had to have been loud. Rip. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? Ripped from the top to the bottom. <coughs> Look with me in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51. <coughs> Matthew 27, it's also in Mark, it's also in Luke. But Matthew 27 and verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. I believe that's when he cried, it is finished. Verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. You know what time this was? When Jesus was dying on the cross, do you know what holiday it was? What, what, what were they rec recognizing? Anybody know? It would have been the Passover. It would have been the time when the animal sacrifices would have been taking place and there would have been lots of activity in the temple. Nobody necessarily going into the holy place, the most holy place, but there would have been activity and all of a sudden a loud rip. <clears throat> I can only imagine if I was in there as a priest and look over and see that thing ripped in half. Boom, I'd have been out of there. I mean, I'd have, I'd have just whoosh, scare me to death. And then you start to put two and two together and find out that that man who John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, one of the priests, John the Baptist said he was the lamb of God. And that man out there cried, it is finished. And as soon as he cried on the cross, it is finished. That's when the veil ripped in two. No wonder it says in Acts chapter six and verse seven that many priests also believed. It would have been hard to keep all that a secret. No doubt some of the Pharisees and and uh, religious rulers who did not believe in Christ probably even paid someone to sew that thing back up and try to keep their little system going. But you can only imagine, I can only imagine what that must have done to their thinking and, and how trembling that must have been. Why? Because this was unthinkable. I mean, this was scary stuff. What this symbolizes, though, is that the ability of every believer, not just a high priest, to approach God through the death of Jesus Christ himself, 
to approach him <clears throat> with boldness. Now let's look at some verses. Hebrews chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 10. Back in Hebrews. Chapter 10. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 19. I already read it, but let's read a few more verses. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, notice the next word, boldness. See, that's what it means. You and I, we're not, we don't come from the background of that Old Testament system. <clears throat> we don't. We don't come from a background where they had animal sacrifices and here was this veil that separated them from the presence of God. But you can understand if you, if you think about it, what they're saying when they say boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. See, that's what you and I get to do. You and I, when we are saved, when Jesus Christ is your savior, you can go directly as the song says, I think it's in our hymnal, we might try to find it. I can go directly to the Lord in prayer. He has told me that I may boldly enter there. There are some people that say, Pastor Matt, I need you to pray for me. Well, I'll pray for you, but listen, if you're saved, you don't need me to pray for you. You can pray for you. You have Jesus as your high priest right there and now. See, Hebrews chapter 4, back up a few pages. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, a human high priest like people today in the Catholic Church, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Sometimes I have been maybe at a funeral or at an event and I've been with other people who are not Christians or are not Baptists and they go to a Catholic church or they go to somewhere other church and, and I will pray and I, I've had people say, and maybe it's not me, but maybe it's some other person that was praying, but I've had people say, wow, that prayer was, and they're trying to put a word to it. And I know what the word is, they just don't know how to say it. That was bold, like, like you were actually talking to him. And not just reading a prayer book or memorizing a line, but like you were really talking to him without some mediator, you, like you already had access. That's what salvation does. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He ripped that veil in two and said, basically, your Old Testament job is over. <clears throat> we don't need human priests anymore. I am going to rise from the dead and be the high priest for everyone. And that's what happened when he made a way that was not yet manifested in Hebrews 9, 8. But now, Hebrews chapter 10, he made the way. And notice it says here in verse 19, back in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say, his flesh. When his flesh was ripped, when his flesh was broken, that opened up the way to God himself, to the Father. His death provided that way. That's the message of the veil being ripped in two and the boldness that it gives us that we can pray to God ourselves. If we're right with the Lord and we're saved and we're 
and we've confessed and we've taken care of things before God. And, and, and you know every high priest would have gotten things right with God before they ever dared to try to go inside there. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. And, and how many days a week do you pray? Or how many days a week should you pray? How many? Every day. So how many days of the week should you be confessing your sin? How many days of the week should you be having just a, like they say, a short account with God? I mean, you just don't let it get long. Every day, because every day we got to go boldly. I mean, you might not think you need God tonight, but by t tomorrow you probably will. And you need him tonight whether you know it or not. And so this is what this, and so, so I, I, I don't think we can overemphasize what, what they're saying there in Hebrews. We can be bold about this. Because that, that, this never crossed their mind that they could, I mean, I'm not a priest. I, how could I? No, that's what he, he's, he's saying. This whole system is done when he died on the cross. That's why <clears throat> this is leading up to Easter, this whole teaching, because this system is not as it was. In our minds, we can still picture it and see it, but we don't have this Old Testament tabernacle system with animal sacrifices and a sealed veil. <clears throat> So when we open up that veil and we go inside, there is the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> it was the central focus of the entire, entire tabernacle system. It was in the most holy place where God spoke to the high priest above the mercy seat, the area where the winged cherubim faced each other. <clears throat> the Ark was the first item of furniture that was constructed after God told Moses to build the tabernacle. It was the number one and most important priority. It's everything. The tabernacle was built to house the Ark of the Covenant. That's really what it was for. It was the place where God met with and talked with Moses. <coughs> God set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark, and they would carry it with those staves as they did the other furniture pieces, not touching the actual Ark, covered with a blue cloth, and carrying it and marching as they went from place to place. To carry it, to stand before him, to serve him, and to bless him. The high priest entered once a year on the day of atonement to sacrifice and to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and to atone for the sins of the people. By the way, atonement, if you just look at that word, atonement, you could actually break it apart and, and dissect it and, and you could call it at one meant because that's what an atonement does. It makes you at one, at one meant. I, I've been told that someone who was translating in English, I think it was William Tyndale before the King James in the 1500s, when William Tyndale first started translating into English, that he actually invented the word. Because it means at one, at one meant. That's what the atonement does. It, it, it makes us at one with God. And we're not separated. We're not, we're not uh, uh, dissected or, or removed from him. But we're at one with him. Leviticus chapter 16, if you would. Leviticus chapter 16. Are you at one with God? Are you connected? Is there unity or is there division? Leviticus 16 and verse 15, <coughs> talking about the priest, then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is before the people and bring his blood within the veil and do, that, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgression in all their sins 
And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And so this was, this chapter 16 of Leviticus is where we get the idea of the day of atonement. <coughs> the friendship or the, the fellowship between God and his people was restored when that would happen. God reached out and made it possible for people to know him and to have fellowship with him. Now, I mentioned earlier about the acacia wood or the shatim wood. Everything was made with this shatim wood or acacia wood as we would call it today. It had overlaying with gold, a crown or gold molding around the edge. But shatim wood means scourging thorns. Acacia wood has thorns in it. What does that remind you of scourging thorns? Isn't that interesting? It all fits together with Jesus. Nothing, he is, he is, he is gold and yet he uh, was scourged and he was uh, beaten with a crown of thorns. The carrying poles were placed through the four gold rings. The poles were wood and overlaid with gold as well. And then the mercy seat was placed on the top of the ark as a lid. <clears throat> Again, the dimensions of it, uh, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. And there's references we can look at that, that picture all this as well. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the contents of the ark. The contents of the ark. <clears throat> Inside the ark, you had the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, those tables of stone that Moses <clears throat> first broke and then recopied another copy and brought them down off of Mount Sinai. <coughs> they were given by God. And the law reminded the people of God's righteousness and of their unrighteousness. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. You know why it's such a mistake to not have the Ten Commandments in school or the Ten Commandments in different places? You know, let me just back up and say, you know why I think people don't like the Ten Commandments? Because if you'll read the Ten Commandments, you'll get, you'll get the impression pretty, pretty quick. You'll realize, maybe if you're a child, you'll not get this, but if you're an adult and you read the Ten Commandments, you know what you'll realize? I can't live up to those. Sometimes you'll ask people, how do you think you're going to heaven? Oh, you got to keep the Ten Commandments. All right, what are they? Uh, uh, thou shalt not kill, and they can only name a, f a few of them. And, and it's a good time to say, boy, it's hard to believe you're going to heaven if you can't even name all 10 of them, and you think that's how you're going to get there. But the truth is, even if you could name all 10 of them, you're not going to get there because you can't keep all 10 of them. I mean, <clears throat> I might be able to keep one or two of them or some of them some of the time, but nobody in here has been able to keep all 10 of them. And so what the Ten Commandments do is they prove to us that we're sinners. I think that's the real reason for the Ten Commandments is to prove to us that we are not righteous like God is righteous. And I think that's why Galatians says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Certainly we can try to live up to the Ten Commandments, we'll fail. And certainly the Ten Commandments are a good guideline and, and we'd be a lot better off to have them just as reminders, but... So one of the things that you find inside the ark was the Ten Commandments. Where do I get this from? Well, look at Hebrews chapter number 9 again. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> Verse 1, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, fleshly, earthly, carnal, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table, and the showbread, 
which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, that would be what we're talking about tonight, the most holy place, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables or the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So we see from Hebrews 9 and verse 4 that there are three items within this ark. The golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant or the Ten Commandments. And so we, we understand that and we realize and recognize that that's what was there. First of all, as I've just said to you, we have the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says that God told Moses to put the Ten Commandments in the ark. Now, question. If they put the Ten Commandments in the ark, then how could they read them? It's not a trick question. They made copies. So way back in the very beginning, God was okay with copying the Bible. As long as you copied it accurately. And the copy was just as inspired and preserved as the original. So obviously, the Actually, the originals got broken. When he came down off the mountain and saw them all dancing and naked, he smashed them. So then there, God made a copy. God had Moses make a copy. Then that copy got put in the ark, but obviously somebody copied it off before they put it in the ark because otherwise nobody would have a copy today. So the Ten Commandments were in the ark. Not only that, but there is the pot, golden pot of manna that reminded the people of God providing for them. And of course, what did Jesus say about the manna? that he was the, their, their daily bread. And then also you have the third thing is Aaron's rod that budded. And again, that's pictured in Num Numbers chapter 17. It's the story of how that the people were murmuring and they did a lot of murmuring and complaining and they were upset with Moses because Moses wasn't as good a leader as they could have been and blah, blah, blah. And, and Moses just thinks too high of himself and, and, and that's why he lets Aaron be, have special privileges because Aaron's his brother and, and blah, blah, blah. And God said, you tell them all to get a stick. Every tribe, you go get yourself a stick. And they all got a stick, every tribe. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, Simeon, Dan, everybody. And Aaron, for the tribe of Levi, you, you, you tell him to get a stick. And so there's 12 sticks for the 12 tribes. All right, I want you to put them inside the tabernacle tonight. And tomorrow, I want you to come back and look at the sticks. So they come back the next day. <coughs> They all had put a stick in there. They come back the next day, these rods that they had cut down off of a tree somewhere. They all put them in. They came back the next day, and they all looked exactly the same except for Aaron's. Aaron's rod flowered and budded and actually produced almonds. And Moses brought all ten sticks out and said, I guess God has decided who he wants. And God said, now, Moses, take that rod and put it back in there and put it inside the ark. And so... That's what Hebrews is talking about, those three different items to represent some. Now, what does that mean? What, why is that there? Why, why would that be there? And they're in there. You can see them uh, with your x-ray vision glasses. You can see them inside the ark right now. Their mercy seat covered them. That's kind of neat how that they're inside, and the mercy of God, the mercy seat that would get the blood sprinkling on it, was covering them. Well, what do those three things re remind us of? Well, the law, the Ten Commandments, reminds us of God's 
reminder to man that he's imperfect and he has transgressions. That God is perfect and man is not. See, the law brings us guilty before God. This is why people can't have God's law hanging on the wall because it's, his, it's a reminder of who he is. Secondly, what does the manna remind us? Murmuring and complaining because they were hungry and didn't have anything to eat. And the rod reminds us of man's rebelling and, and getting mad at, at Moses, the man that God had chosen. And so those three things all have a negative, but they have a positive as well. The manna reminds us of what Jesus said concerning himself, the bread of life. Go with me in John chapter number six, if you would. <clears throat> John chapter six. <clears throat> he had just fed 5,000. And so bread was on their mind. The miracle of, of the feeding with just a few loaves of bread. In John chapter 6, verse 31, our fathers, these are the people saying, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, and Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Then we drop down to verse 48. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that is the man may eat thereof and not die. Jesus said, I'm going to give bread that is better than the bread your fathers ate in the wilderness. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat man and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now I've had Catholics tell me that that's the reason why <coughs> they need to turn the bread into the actual body and blood of Jesus. I don't believe for one minute that God was telling us to turn into cannibals, but rather that spiritually speaking, that we would understand that God would have us to recognize that just as he said in Matthew chapter four, verse four, when he quoted Deuteronomy eight, verse three, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. In fact, it proves it as you, if you'll keep reading to the end of chapter six, it says, it is the spirit, verse 63, that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It's not, it's not me physically, but rather I am the word and we are to feed on the word of God. We are to feed on the word of God as our daily bread. That's what we're to recognize here. 
and recognize him as our manna. So anyhow, talking about the manna, let's keep going. So the mercy seat, the mercy seat was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, as Exodus 25 tells us. It included the winged cherubim that faced each other, and those wing tips would touch and they would hover over the mercy seat. By the way, this is a picture of what it really looks like in heaven. At one time, there was a cherub named Lucifer, and he was the anointed cherub that covered. But he got proud of himself, and he fell. Apparently, there's other cherubs that have taken his place. But if you could look into the real holy of holies, which is heaven, this is just a picture of that. There would be cherubs covering, hovering over him. So this is a picture. Again, Hebrews tells us that this is the pattern of the true tabernacle in heaven. God dwelled between the cherubim and spoke to the priest. That's why it's a mercy seat that it was his throne. And these two winged cherubs faced each other with their wings outstretched toward each other and were on it. Again, the dimensions of it are not that big of a deal, I don't think, but those are the dimensions, two and a half cubits long, foot, or one and a half cubits wide. But I'm going to look at these verses real quick. Exodus chapter 25 and Hebrews chapter number uh, 9 again. Exodus 25. Exodus 25 and verse 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work. Shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat and make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on, the high, on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, and shall... <clears throat> shall the faces of the cherubims be toward the mercy seat. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark shalt thou put the testimony that I shall give thee. Verse 22, And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in command, commandment unto the children of Israel. So this is literally where God said, I will meet with you. And I will commune with you on this mercy seat. This is why it was the most holy place. Now look with me in Second Samuel chapter six and Psalm chapter ninety-nine. Second Samuel chapter six. When you read some of this stuff, you don't really think about it unless you realize, unless you're aware of what the tabernacle and the temple look like. Second Samuel chapter six and verse two, and David arose and went with the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. He dwells between the cherubims. Psalm chapter 99. Psalm chapter 99 and verse one. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. Now, where is God? Is he sitting on a literal ark today? He's in heaven. 
dwelling between the cherubims. In fact, even in the Old Testament, when they had this tabernacle system, he was really in heaven dwelling between the cherubims. But to picture it and to understand it and to, and to be able to comprehend it, God gave them this object lesson. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5. And over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. <clears throat> the mercy seat was symbolic of God's divine throne and presence. And with the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat, the judgment of God is transformed into the grace and mercy of God. Without the blood, he is, he is a judge. Without the blood, it is a scary place to be. Without the blood, no one, including me, would want to be there. But with the blood, it becomes the mercy seat instead of the judgment seat. Praise God for the blood. That day of at one that day of atonement. Of course, since Christ died on the cross and now has gone into heavens, into the heavens, he atones and he stands before the throne of God on my behalf all the time and on your behalf if you're saved as well. What an awesome thing. We're going to close with just these few last thoughts here concerning the presence of God. The Bible says that God's presence was symbolized <coughs> with a cloud, a pillar of fire and a pillar of a cloud. That was his presence. And this cloud or pillar of fire would rest above the tabernacle, directly above the mercy seat. And they, that was to show them and to signify that he is there. What an awesome thing. Go with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. We really could read almost this entire chapter because it really sums up everything concerning the tabernacle, but we won't do it. But Exodus 40 is really a summation of, of everything. But Exodus 40, we'll start in verse number 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode therein, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in their, all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was upon it at, by night in the sight of all the house of Israel and throughout all their journeys. And one other place is Numbers chapter 9. If you just turn there with me and I'll be done. Numbers chapter 9. <coughs> Numbers chapter 9 and verse 15 and 16. The only difference with that cloud was that in the daytime it looked one way and at night it looked a different way. But it was the presence of God. It was the cloud. And so we see that in Numbers chapter 9 and verse 15 and 16. And on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely the tent of the testimony. And at even there was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire until the morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. What an awesome thing. If you were to step over the ridge and look down at these people camped along all around their tabernacle, and it was maybe getting to be dusk in this cloud that had hovered above it and was over the tabernacle, all of a sudden started to glow as a pillar of fire at night. 
if you know anything about the desert, it's a lot like this country out here. At night, when the sun goes down, all of the temperature goes down. So it provided them a nice warmth and also just reminded them that he is there. And in the daytime, wouldn't need the fire because you've got the sun, but the cloud was still there. And then when the cloud or the fire, pillar fire was gone, that was their signal. It's time to pack up and move on. But it was, <coughs> it was a picture and a, and a representation of the presence of God. This is, this is all part of uh, just an object lesson, a symbolism, uh, a way for us to picture and for his people to picture his presence and his holiness. <coughs> they wouldn't dare go inside that tabernacle if they didn't belong there. The holy place, the most holy place was for the high priest. And I'm sure the high priest took it extremely serious about his job of going inside there. So how is it that Christians can use God's name in vain? How is it that we can curse or, or deny him in some way? Or, or just treat the whole thing flippantly as if it's not a big deal? Wherever it stopped, they camped until it moved again. They never got ahead of it. They always followed it. And the word that we just read shows that. Next, we'll talk about the priest and what he looked like and what he was to wear. We, we need to understand the importance of just respect, the importance of recognizing who God is. Now, I do understand, and we are right when we say this building is not the church, and it is not the church. But what do we do in this building? We worship God. We worship God. We use, we use this instrument here, and we use this instrument over here to worship God. So we really should never use it for anything else, should we? We, we really should never, and, and I think it's completely correct for a mother to say to their child, listen, this is the sanctuary, and it is. Don't, don't be running around or doing things. Be respectful. I do think we need to recognize that when we are meeting for, to be in the presence of God, that we are aware of what it is we're doing and we're, see, we've gone a long ways from coming boldly to now we come flippantly. I think, I think folks from 2,000 years ago would be shocked at the way people come before God today. I'm not saying we should become afraid of him, but we shall never forget who he is. And what a privilege it is to come before his throne as an adopted child. With that in mind, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6 and we'll be done. Isaiah chapter number 6. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one of the seraphims cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. He had a vision. He saw this in the heavenly temple, not the one in Jerusalem. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I, I think we just need to stop and realize that when we do come before the throne of grace, he is to be revered as holy, holy, holy. Thrice holy. And we need to stop and realize I am in the presence of God and I am talking to him, not because I deserve to, but because of the blood atonement that provides for me the way to go strictly, straightly to the throne of grace. And we should have the attitude of Isaiah, woe is me, to think that I have, that I have the audience of God when I pray and when I'm talking to him. And to see the reverence that even the seraphim have for him in calling him holy, holy, holy. Let's close in prayer tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for opportunity to look piece by piece, room by room at this tabernacle system. Help us to <clears throat> try to picture in our mind's eye to try to understand. and Help us to understand also that when it says come boldly to the throne of grace, that's exactly what it means, but it does not mean flippantly cheaply or disrespectfully help us to recognize that what is set apart for you needs to be set apart for you and that we would be sanctified as people you said that our bodies are to be the temple of the holy ghost so may our bodies our minds our our eyes our ears and everything about us be truly holy and sanctified and separated help us to not be flippant and help us not to wonder why things aren't going right when we are. Help us to get right with you and to come boldly, but to become come very respectful and very much in awe that you would even love us and allow us in your presence. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the blood that atones and saves poor sinners like us. And if there's someone that is not yet saved listening to me tonight, that they would realize that they have no way to access you and they have no way to come boldly to you without the blood of the Lamb. Help us to be witnesses for you wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.